7. It can be found on page 3932 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. this thing dies, I suspect the batteries are low. So if it dies, then I'll switch to the other microphone. Let's pray. Our God of grace, as we come into this space, the truth is um, we are more childlike um, than we want to admit in our attempts at control, our attempts at making sense of things, um, they actually really don't, don't measure up to a whole lot. We sit here and whether we've had a great week or a really a difficult week, whether we're on the top of our career path or whether we're, um, there's things about our, our vocation that we don't even want to admit to people about how, how bad it's going, wherever we are, the truth is, that we're more broken, vulnerable, and, and, and a mess than we want people to know. We're a mixture of all the beauty that you made us and made our world to contain, and yet all the fragmentation has been brought into things by, by the sin, sin that has invaded and made its way into every sphere of, of this world. And the story of your grace is that uh, you moved towards broken lives in your son Jesus. So today as we process hurt or happiness or um, questions or we feel like we finally have answers, wherever, whatever we come with this morning, may you speak to us through that narrative of, of you moving towards us, and you being what we need, us needing more than we realize. May you come to us and rescue us and shower our lives with the forgiveness promised in Jesus, the grace, the healing, the mercy. May it be present here this morning, filling this room, filling our hearts, and moving with us and through us to other places in this city and in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of the week last week was, uh, who, what is worth arguing about? 
what's worth arguing about. And so we got a few answers from, from all y'all. And uh, someone said, arguing, really, there's very few things worth arguing about. Debating, exploring, contesting, critiquing, almost everything. Um, so just maybe some semantics there, right? Um, somebody else said, how to restore the great economy. That's worth arguing about. Somebody else said, unbelievers' honest questions. And somebody else said, uh, what's worth arguing about, whether or not the dress is blue or black or white or gold. <laughs> what's worth arguing about. And some of the most... Um, some of the most uh, intense arguments that we have, some of our most telling arguments, we keep really to ourselves. We keep kind of inwardly as we make a case for or against how we measure up in some kind of way in life. You resonate with that? Are you, are you kind of making little arguments to yourself about why you measure up or why you don't? Maybe you... Maybe the ammunition you use for these arguments are your appearance and you're going for that youthful athletic look and you're judging yourself against it. Others of us go by our accomplishments. Some go by those letters behind your name, right? You, none of you could see this, but a giant float just went by on the street. And I just have to acknowledge that and let it go. <laughs> But this incredible thing just happened behind you. That's never happened before. In like two... What's that? You believe. Yeah. I'm just buying myself time, you think, for the next... That's, that's pretty funny. Okay. I'll find my spot again. Some of us uh, evaluate ourselves and measure ourselves by our bank balance. Um, there's all kinds of things we might use. Um, by um, friendships by how well you are doing at pleasing your parents, or by whether or not you have a spouse, have found a spouse, or um, maybe it's children, you know, whether you've been able to have children yet. And so there's different things we measure ourselves up against, and we kind of might try to make a case that um, we're okay or we measure up. Um, Jesus seems in this part of the Gospel of Mark, in the story that uh, Jen just read, he seems insistent upon teaching his inner circle of people, his, you know, the future leaders of the church, to remove themselves from the superhighway of self-pursuits. To, to try to do anything with his teaching to get people off of the treadmill of endless comparison and self-evaluation. And it forces us today, what we're doing is we're asking ourselves a question um, about our own involvement in that superhighway of self-pursuits. Has anything ever in your life actually had the power to break the bondage of those things that are jostling inside of you, the perpetual inner jostling that needs to be settled. Has anything ever had done a good job of settling that? Anything had power over that? Jesus seems to think it's possible for that all to be settled and for it to look different. That maybe if that jostling is gone, that posturing and that, that self-elevation is somehow 
powerless, you'll, your life will look a whole lot more like just welcoming a child. Um, a child that has no bearing on your own self-elevation or your own accomplishment or your own greatness. The context within which Mark is telling this story uh, of Jesus is really interesting because um, we're getting one of the three times that Jesus gives this prediction. And so actually last week we talked about the first one, and now he does it again. Jesus uh, gives this prediction of where things are going in his ministry, and he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. Jesus teaches this this is, it, Mark portrays it that Jesus teaches this three times. Gospel of Matthew portrays it that, well as, that way as well. So three times, kind of close together. It's a pattern. It's an emphasis. You know, It comes in three. And then what, what also is really interesting about this is that, is that it's bookended by two stories of blindness. So if you look at chapter 8 and then you look at chapter 10, there's these two stories where Jesus heals a blind man, bookends this section of teaching that Jesus is doing about how his ministry is going to go. So think about, think about this. The, the, his teaching is basically just the succinct heart of the Christian teaching. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was killed on the cross, rose from the dead. And that is central to what you need to know about him, how, how your life will be transformed. Okay, so it's this central teaching put in the context of blindness, of we don't get it, of there's a really big uphill climb, it seems, for us to get to the point of seeing it clearly. It's fuzzy, it doesn't connect, it doesn't make sense. Or maybe another way to look at it is, is a more hopeful way, is that this, there's this offer that you can finally, Jesus truly believes you can finally see clearly. I mean, both of these stories of blindness end in people seeing, their eyes being opened. Your eyes can be opened to this incredible teaching that can transform even those areas of posturing and jostling and how you're pursuing measuring up yourself in this world. But we're kind of blind to it. We need our eyes open somehow. So, and you see the disciples' blindness, obviously. Even there were chuckles as we read the story, right? Jesus says, the Son of Man will be killed, delivered into human hands, killed, and rise. What happens next? The disciples argue about who's the greatest between them. Um, maybe to their credit, they get a sense that they shouldn't answer Jesus when he asks what they're arguing about. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that show a tiny bit, that they, they got it a tiny bit, that they knew? They were like, well, we were arguing about who's greatest. I mean, what? what? <laughs> I mean, they, they got it a little bit that they wouldn't even answer him but when he asked. So Jesus... Um, so, okay, so they're arguing about greatness. Let me share with you the cultural milieu of the time. Ramsey McMullen, in his book, Roman Social Relations, 50 B.C. to A.D. 284, describes a sense of class in the ancient world that, although recognizable to us today, was of a scale that we might have a hard time imagining. The ancient world had no middle class. 
Most of the wealth was accumulated at the very top of the social structure, and the bulk of people found themselves poor. Within the elite world, honor was incredibly important. The components of honor and shame were common. The upper classes emphasized for everyone to notice and acknowledge the steep, steep social structure that they topped. The rich wanted to associate only with other rich. They would intentionally insult and demean those who were slightly less rich and hope to accumulate favor with those who were above them. That was the normalized status, culture, and the behavior that goes along with it in the day that Jesus is talking. And so, and then, so this is what Jesus does. Because who's even, who's even lower than the lo- who's the lowest in all of that is children. They didn't have this, you know, they didn't have the values about children. We kind of elevate children a bit, right? Like it's a, you know, not, not them. Children were less than the least. So Jesus takes a little child, places it among them, and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. See how that goes directly against that status pursuing, I want to I wanna put this person down because they're a little bit lower and I want to you know, kiss up to this person because they're a little bit higher because it's all about elevating myself and moving myself along. One commentator put it this way, and this just summarizes the, the wealth of what people know about the meaning behind Jesus taking a child and saying this. One commentator said, the child represents and is in that day the absolute least powerful and the absolute least important. In our society, maybe that looks a little different because we do elevate children. We do, um, even though I put my kids to work at home, I have four kids and I put them to work, you know, we do, theoretically, we're against, you know, child labor. And there's apparently laws about that. Um, but an, an example for us today might be something like these communities throughout the U.S. and the world um, called La Arche communities. I don't know if I'm saying it right because I'm not a French speaker, but I think that's a French title. A lot of people know about La Arche because of Henry Nouwen, who um, moved there and lived there for 10 years. The La Arche community is a group that, um, or are these communities throughout the world where Um, people with mental and physical handicaps live amidst people who um, don't have handicaps. There's caregiving, there's life shared together, but it's not considered to be the ones without the handicaps are are serving the other ones in like a one-way thing. It's viewed as community, as needing each other, and people's reactions have been pretty extreme when they go and they see this up close and experience it. One woman named Heather Bixler, in her experience of living in a large community, said, We are constantly pushed to get ahead, climb higher, and to leave the weakest behind. We fear our neighbors and bomb the other. We are taught to live by our own rules no matter how our actions impact other things or people. For all intents and purposes, living in caring relationships with one another is downright countercultural. She says the bodies and minds of people at La Arch don't fit neatly into the mainstream understanding of what it means to be a person of worth. 
And she asks, what sort of kingdom rules from the bottom up? But as I and many others can attest, La Arche is an upside-down place where the simple details of daily life narrate the bigger story of God's love for the world. Um, Henry Nouwen left a illustrious career as a professor at Harvard, Harvard. He said, something inside me was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. There's a statement that you have to ask yourself about. He realized that his success was putting his own soul in danger. How does that work? I didn't know how to deepen my heart and my soul, how to stay close to Jesus amidst all of it. He was invited to be the pastor of Daybreak, a large community in Toronto. He gratefully accepted. The move startled many. This successful writer and Ivy League academic moved backwards from the way society recommends. He wrote that, and you can read about his um, a lot of his reflections, self-reflections on this process. He wrote that in going from Harvard to Daybreak, he went from an institution for the best and the brightest to work with people who are often the most despised in society. Ironically, this one place, this is one place where he experienced God's call, is also the least interested in his expertise as a writer and lecturer. He says, if the handicapped people express love for you, then it comes from God. It's not because you accomplished anything. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self. The self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. I think that's where Jesus is going, bringing a child into his arms and embracing it and saying that we will, in a sense he's saying we will find God when we embrace a child. One writer talking about Isaiah 11, which ends with, uh, and a little child will lead them, often spoken around Christmas time. He says, in the upside down world of the kingdom of God, it is perfectly fitting for a child to lead others. Here are the gifts of children to trust, to comfort, to imagine, and to be vulnerable are taken not as signs of weakness, but of strength. Why a child? Why a child? We could go on and on, but I think where Jesus is going, especially with this, is that because to welcome a child... Um, means you have to get over yourself because a child can't help you move yourself forward. And in embracing a child, what Jesus is after is that you will see yourself as the vulnerable, helpless child. And Christ, the King, gives all to rescue you. Has that set in? Is that your identity? It's a hard identity to grab hold of because it starts with such a humble step. I truly am a helpless, vulnerable child. In the story that God has told through the scriptures and through Jesus and through the church ever since is that that's what we are. Helpless, vulnerable, 
But Christ the King gives all to rescue you, to come to your, your aid in a world where no one cares, in a spiritual world where no one cares. Has that sunk in? I think our blindness, our blindness is, you know, is pretty extreme, and we need the connection that Jesus just keeps repeating over and over again in these, in these pages. The connection between his sacrifice and our transformation. This isn't just the realm of, um, I'll do it and you see me do it, and then you can copy me. In fact, that's, that's one of the very common ways that folks approach Jesus and, and walk into church and attempt to explore and move forward. It, it's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It's, sure, you'll copy, but you'll experience transformation because you'll see that I've done this for you. It connects deeply with you and where you're at in life. With your own vulnerability, you need a sacrifice. You need one to go on your behalf. In a sense, Jesus made the cosmic move to enter in, to move himself to our community of handicapped souls. And he gave up his lofty accolades and high thrones because he loves us. Not because we deserve it, not because he just does it because he does it. He loves us because he loves us. Mm. I wonder if you feel, you know, when you hear those words, do you feel a little bit blind still towards it? Not like a stubborn blindness, just like it's kind of hazy or it's fuzzy or it hasn't yet sunk in. Don't be surprised or hesitant to see yourself as blind, to admit there's blindness there to getting this. I was so helped this week by going to a funeral of someone that some of you know, um, probably most of you don't, but his name is David George, and he's a beloved pastor in the Sacramento area. He died um, really, really suddenly from an aggressive pancreatic cancer. And he was 66 years old. I, I knew him a little bit, not super well, but I have this ring of people in my life who know him a lot better than me and who... And so it was like, a, it's kind of like seeing it, him through them and feeling like I need to be there and, and see what they have seen in his life. I went to his funeral or a memorial service in Roseville on Thursday. So here's this beloved pastor who um, had a, a mega church in Roseville, started 25 years ago, but he had none of those traits that you would expect from someone that described as a pastor of a really big church. He basically just was really good at loving everyone individually. He, um, he, it wasn't about charisma. It wasn't about intellect. Although he probably had some of those things. This hour and a half or two-hour service that I went to on Thursday was just filled with people reminiscing on how he loved them. How if you got an hour of David George's time, it was an hour where... It was all about him being present to your life and to your concerns with just genuine fascination and joy. This got repeated over and over and over again. One person said that it, it didn't matter if you were a banker or a preschool teacher. He was equally interested in you and fascinated. His, you know, a, a thing he would say is, that's fascinating. Tell me more about and then whatever you're talking about. There's a slideshow that, that started the, 
the service and it was all pictures of him and little video clips of him. And I was stunned by how many. It was so overwhelming how many of them, maybe 40, 50% of the images and little videos were about him looking eyeball to eyeball with a small child, either one of his own, you know, like 25, 30 years ago, or somebody in his congregation or a grandchild. I couldn't believe how many times he just had this huge smile on his face looking into the eyes of a child and usually that child just mirroring right back. And people talked about how he was known for this body posture. They knew it. It was like everyone laughed when someone described him with his hands on his knees like this getting down at a child's level. To be known for that, that everyone would knowingly laugh because they've seen you do it so many times. I walked away from that service. Um, I mean, I... I don't know him as well as most of the people there, but I walked away feeling like my eyes had been opened to a kind of a love and a kind of a presence. It made me really curious. It made me analytical of myself. It made me wonder about how I love people. I went home and I, I uh, arrived at home and got out of the car that I had driven there and I saw this landscaping crew out side in the lawn, I just started talking to them and asking them, trying to show interest and just feeling like, okay, a little, you know, I just was in that mode, like, that's how I want to live. I just, these people here, start talking to them, ask them how it's going, how's the weather, how do you like doing this job? And I was thinking about how hard it is, too, because then I analyzed the conversation I had with the landscaping crew, and it kind of judged myself at how well I did, and I thought, well, I kind of took over the conversation at that point and made it about me. Would David George have done that? You know, I was in that moment. He would have probably asked them more about something they had already said, you know. But I didn't mind. I felt like that's, you know, I felt like that's the kind of thing that I want to be moving towards. I, 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 um, and I guess I realized how much room I have to go. Can you let down your guard for a second and be curious about your own blindness? Really what I hope is that I hope you have someone in your life who, um, who you look up to and that you've been able to have them sit across from you and pour over the details of your life like you're some kind of celebrity. I hope you have someone in your life like that at some point. You look up to them, but it seems like they're just giving of themselves. Like, they, like in your presence, they don't matter. All, you matter. Has somebody shown that to you ever? Have you ever had that? Because I feel like that's the connection. That's, that's, if you have that, then you can see, you can taste, because that's a Christ-like person. And then you can taste and see this feeling of undeserving and terribly lucky. That's, what, that's how we are before God. That's Jesus in our life. It's too good to be true. That's the connection Jesus tries to make over and over again in these chapters. Not some overbearing burden to try harder at loving people. But that our blindness would be removed to seeing who Jesus is and what he does. That he does that for us. And that perhaps in your small attempts to talk to a landscaping crew or someone else in your life, child, adult, someone in your life that you, 
you try this with and that your eyes might be opened. In a sense, it works both ways. You might meet Jesus in this way and it might translate to loving others. Or you might intentionally try to love someone that's hard to love or that you overlook. And then you might meet in that or see things in that that reveal things about God and about his love for you. It works both ways. So I guess the biggest, the big question that we pray about that we end with is, are your eyes open? Are they open? Let's pray. Our God of grace, would you open our eyes and would you help us? Um, I pray that your love will fill our lives and spill out of our lives. And I pray that City Life Church can be a place where love abounds. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.